Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Look with me at Titus chapter 2. and Let's look at the first verse. I'll read all the way through verse 8. This is God's word. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. The whole purpose of the book of Titus is to grasp what happens. Let me, be, let me back up a little bit. The whole purpose of the book of Titus is to grasp what a healthy church begins to look like and then what a healthy church looks like as God grows it. A healthy church, like a healthy body, takes sacrifice. It takes work. It takes an intentionality. It, it takes a... Uh, a, a, a focus on what is true, what is right. A, a, a healthy body uh, cannot be healthy if the person who is the steward of that body does not grasp that there are decisions that need to be made regarding that body to care for it. The same is true of the church. A church is not a building. It's not a, a healthy building that looks nice or that we put money into repairs and improvements. No, the church is a people. It's a It's a an assembly, it's a body of believers. Because it's a body of believers, there's work that needs to be done, there's focus, there's correction that often has to take place, there's alignment within the body that is vital to the health of the church. It is possible to be a church and to not be healthy. And a church that is not healthy is not healthy because of a lack of attention and obedience to the Scripture. It really is that simple. Several of you have asked today about my brother, who I shared with you a couple weeks ago, is battling stage 3 cancer. He had an appointment on Friday with an oncologist, his first appointment. He came out of that appointment with some things that he has to do in response to the sickness in his body. It would behoove him to take good attention and intention with what doctors and those that know how to attack this awful disease of cancer, how they instruct him to care for his body. That's a part of what we know, and so it's the same in Scripture. What happens, though, in a church, and churches today in 2020, and church in Titus's day in 45 AD, there's a lot of culture shifting and Things are different, but I'm going to tell you something. I'll say some very important and pointed things today. 
that culture ultimately and people ultimately are not all that different today as they were 2,000 years ago. There comes a point in a church, in a church and in a believer, that there must be a decision whether or not Scripture is to be authoritative in that life. So a church and Christians must make a decision. Is Scripture going to be authoritative? We each will decide whether we believe whether Scripture is authoritative when the Bible speaks specifically something that is said that we don't really know what to do with it. We have to decide whether or not when the Bible speaks, does God speak? Or is the Bible an antiquated book filled with some ideas that have been relevant were relevant 2,000 years ago, but today it's no longer relevant. See, the central thought around the sufficiency of the Bible is this. The Word, if the Word is what we believe it is as the Word of God, will we believe and accept all of the Bible while dismissing at times what we like or don't like? And if we do so, if we accept what we like, and dismiss what we don't like, then good logic would argue, what does it say about the rest of the Bible and whether or not it's believable if we only believe a portion? Also, if God is off on an area, an area that is argued or that we don't really like about what God has said, we might want to consider this if we think that God is off in a certain area, the question becomes, is God off on the gospel? Because the very word of God holds the gospel of God, and if we would believe that anything inside the scripture is wrong or out of touch, then your eternity is also at stake, because it's possible if God missed on one area, that he also missed on the gospel. So believing the Bible all of it becomes believing all of the Bible, literally all of it. It's also important to note, as several have asked actually, interestingly, in the last few weeks, we must remember that the words in red, the words of Jesus, are not more important than the words in black. I had a man say to me recently, I believe the red words over the black words because man wrote the black words, to which I reminded him. That God used a man, a human, to pen both the red and the black words. And if you don't like the black words, but you like the red words, your problem is actually not with the words, your problem is with God. Now it's important to note because, again, how do we know that if we don't like the black words because those didn't come from Jesus, but we like the red words that they they came from Jesus? How do we know that the red words were even penned correctly by the man to which we claim to not want to listen to? Our position here at Ravenswood is very simple. Let me be clear here. We line up with what Scripture says about Scripture. Our historic position as believers has been when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so when the Bible speaks and God speaks, that we grasp that our Creator has spoken and the one who has organized all that we have in this world has spoken, 
We believe God. 2 Timothy 3 says about Scripture, all Scripture, all of it, red and black, all of it, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That means literally all Scripture. God breathed inspiration. God gave it. 2 Peter 1 says this in verse 21, For the prophecy, speaking of the Word of God, the Scripture, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The whole Bible, all of it, is God's revelation of His work in the world through Jesus and now by the Spirit through the church. And so let me give you a couple direct quotes here that I want you to hear that really prepare us for this chapter, chapter number two of the book of Titus. The people of God take orders from no other general than God himself as he is given in his word. Let me say that again. The people of God take orders from no other general than God himself as he has given in his word. This context is necessary because we're, we've begun placing systems of thought. We've changed and altered ideas and the historic teaching of the church regarding the biblical roles for the church. Honestly, this is both principled and yes, it is also pragmatic. Principled because when we come to Scripture, God decides what His church looks like. Man doesn't. I'll say that again. God decides what His church looks like. Man doesn't because it's not mine or yours. So it is right to ascribe to Scripture what Scripture says, even when we don't understand. And then at the same time, it is best. So in pragmatism, it is also best for a church to operate as God has commanded the church to operate. It's right, and it is the best practice of a church, hear me, not to outthink God, not to market its way around what God has done, and not even to try to figure out how can I make God's words palatable. It's not my job. It's not the church's job. It is God's word. It is God's church. And so, hear this quote. It's in your outline. A healthy church will operate in God's prescribed manner regardless of how it is received by a culture that is already against Scripture. A healthy church will operate in God's prescribed manner regardless of how it is received by a culture that is already against Scripture. Now, you say, that seems to be a pretty pointed statement. It is, because hear this very carefully. I am not standing here today as an enemy of people or culture. I am telling you, though, that culture is made up and defined by people. People create culture. Broken people create a broken culture. Can we agree to that? If, if the world is full of sinners, sinners cannot be trusted, even through the means of common grace given by God. They cannot be trusted to operate a culture that looks like God if the people are broken. 
Simple as that. And Zach gives us a picture of that today. The culture is broken because people need rescue. They need redemption. They need to be made whole by the good news of Jesus. And so we come to a culture and we look at a culture and we say, our job as a church has never been to line up with a culture. Our job as a church has never been to make this church easy for culture. Our job as a church is to line this church up with Scripture. And so that's one of the reasons why we saw at the very beginning with Titus that he is ordaining elders, men who are married to women. This is God's prescribed means for a healthy church. I'm not interested in what a culture tells me i got to do because I can't expect good to come from what's broken. I can't expect good to come from God. Are you with me? A little bit. All right. I knew this would be a fun one. You might think, well, Pastor, you're in Chicago, man. You can't build a church this way. You can't get people to come to your church this way. And let me just remind you, it's not any of our jobs to build this church. It's God's job to build the church. He'll do fine. He'll do it. And he'll do it by his prescribed manner. It is my job to instruct this church and its Christians in a biblical obedience and a biblical prescription for life. I will add to that. And I will go on to say this. The statistics are very clear if you want to look them up. I'd be glad to share them with you. That those who are turning away from God's design pattern are already beginning to see that they once they begin to throw out God's pattern of ordered structure in a church, that what quickly follows after is the rest of God's message. And eventually, like the Anglican church in Canada, who have now realized that they have 20 years left of existence, that if you want to talk about building a church, I think God's people want God's word God's way. And so as we look at Scripture, we want to be obedient to the Word. While not being unkind, not being abusive, not being disrespectful, but we want to say, okay, God created me. God knows what's best for me. This is God's church. He gets it His way. On top of that, it's healthy. It's biblically healthy for Christians to embrace the role that God has given them in the church. If these roles do not get fulfilled, the church fails at its mission over time. Let me say that again. If these roles do not get fulfilled, the church fails at its mission over time. And every person in the church, every person here today, has a role to play in this body Don't be too good and don't be too insecure for your role. Let me remind you, the gospel is too beautiful and the gospel is too glorious for us to sit on the sideline. I'll say that again. The gospel is too beautiful and too glorious for us to sit on the sideline thinking, A, I'm too good for my role, or B, I'm too insecure for my role, so I'm just going to pull back. A healthy Christian living in a healthy church 
is going to embrace a healthy biblical role. Now, before I dive into this passage, let me give you a very key thought to how we go forward. Now, stay with me and hear me very carefully, okay? Hang on to every word I'm about to say. A solid and healthy identity in the gospel first will free us to obey Jesus in the face of culture that is opposed to Jesus. I can only take what I hear this morning and embrace it if I'm walking in a healthy gospel identity that tells me, I don't define me, you don't define me, Jesus defines me. That's important. Now, let's take a few minutes and look at the passage that we're going to talk about for these next few moments. Notice in chapter 2 again, as we pick up here, I want you to notice in verse number 1. Paul says this, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Paul goes through this, verse number 1. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. He goes through this with them, telling them that what you're going to hear, this is the beginning of the sound doctrine that a church needs to ascribe to. The people in Crete have been listening to false teachers. They've been persuaded by defiled and wicked men. The people in Crete have followed the words and instruction of a men and a culture more than they followed the word of God. Say that again. The people in Crete have followed a culture more than they followed the word of God. And so when we come to this passage, what we find is actually not, it's not restrictive Our danger is we tend to see the scripture as restrictive because we feel like God is not letting me be who I need to be. What a silly statement that would be, right? Because God has made you who you are. So God is not being restrictive. God is actually bringing you and me to our greatest understanding of liberty in the gospel. So this is the sound doctrine that he's going to, he's supposed to teach. Notice, in, notice there in number one in your outline. And I'm going to move really fast, so listen fast. The role of an older man, the role of the aged man. What he does here is Paul gives aged, he gives the aged, he gives the younger, both men and women. Aged men, younger men. Aged women, younger women. Now you might go, okay, what category do I fall into? Here's where you really get mad, okay? The aged, remember, Paul is writing as a trained experienced Jew who's been trained in rabbinical literature and in rabbinic, rabbinical literature in the Jewish faith, the younger men and the younger people were ages 18 to 42. Okay? Some of you are like, I'm in. Yeah. Regardless of age, and this is not so much about age, but if we were to be specific on age, it means that those that are in that age group of 18 to 42, you're considered the younger's in a church. If you're 43 and up, okay? Up, we'll just say up. <laughs> you fit into what scripture would refer to or what Paul might be, and I'm being vague on this, he might be considering, you're considered the, the aged men and women in a church. And I think that makes sense as you see the things that Paul directs them to. There's 
There's family. There's spiritual walk. There's marriage. And so there's the idea of these aged women who have experienced child-rearing and family life, there to instruct the younger women. And the older men have experienced walking as a Christian in this world, living in light of a culture that is anti-God, and there to instruct the younger men in the same. Now again, I want you to think about this, and Zach, it's perfect that Zach is here today, because Zach's ministry actually exists on a heartbreaking reality. That a, that a structure in a society that is needed is broken. That children are abused or neglected and grow up without what they need. A healthy home needs a husband and a father and a mother and a wife. It needs that. People, children can exist and grow without that with healthy people around them. But in a church, it is vital that every person understand that there is a need for the aged and there is a need for the younger. A church with only the aged and no youngers doesn't have any purpose. A church where the youngers are dismissive to the aged, the youngers are being unbiblical. Now in our church, look around. There is both aged and younger, and that's how a church should look. Amen? And you aged that have been around a long time, it ought to thrill your heart that there are some youngers here. It's a big, that's a big reality to the future of a church. And so here we look at the, the role of the, age, age, the, the older man or the aged man. Notice in verse number two that the aged men, this is what they're to be, sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Now in Cretan churches, the men were immature, ungodly, disorderly. So some instruction needed to be given to them. The older men have a role and responsibility and it must be taken up. So the older men must speak the things which become sound doctrine as well. This addresses the importance of the older men, those that are aged, are to be engaged in the body life of the church. The danger for those that are older, especially once you get close to retirement age, is you begin to think you're in coasting territory. But the New Testament doesn't give you the ability or the privilege to take your foot off the gas of your life. And if you do so, who is affected is the younger. In fact, if you're aged in here, okay, and I don't mean like, like Moses old, okay? I'm using the biblical phrase here. If you're the aged man or woman in this room, you must grasp that you cannot be apathetic to your role. The church is at stake because of it. So notice what happens here. The aged men are to gather around the younger men. They're to speak truth to them. They're to help form the younger men to spiritual maturity. So we find the aged men, let me just move quickly through this. They're to be sober, clear-minded, self-controlled. This doesn't have to do with alcohol. It has to do with being a self-controlled person who controls their words, who controls their actions. The same word is used to describe a bishop. It's the same word used to describe a deacon's wife in 1 Timothy 3. So they're to be sober, they're to be grave. This is the idea of not being in the grave, thankfully. But this is the idea of being honest and respectable. That the older men are to be honest and respectable. There's to be something about you that younger men, even if they don't know you, they watch you and they find you to be respectable. They're temperate. It means this person is moderate in their lifestyle. They're moderate in their lifestyle. It's the idea of being controlled with things. We find actually the word, the idea of temperance is a gift and fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
We find also about the aged men, they're to be sound in faith. This triad here, sound in faith, sound in charity, sound in patience. That older men are to be sound in their faith. They're to be sound or healthy or wholesome in their charity. They're to express love and charity to others. And something that's often criticized for older people is they're to be patient. The word has this whole phrase has an idea that the aged men are to have gospel-shaped qualities that mark them and characterize them. So I say to the men in here that fit into the aged category, the older men in this church, do these characters, do these, do these qualifications characterize your life? This church needs this from you. The younger men in this place need this from you. The young married men need to see it. The young single men need to see it. The children who will come in here in a few minutes and run around, they need to see it from you. It's vital. It's vital to a church, vital to a healthy church. And so if you love the gospel and you love this church, and this is your category, we need this from you. You have a role in this church. The danger in the American Christianity is the sidelining of the gray head. The sidelining of the gray head. Something young and flashier and new comes along, and so we sideline the, the old school. We sideline the experience. We push aside. We quiet them. Yes, I understand you used to walk uphill both ways to school. I get that. And so the, it, you kind of get sidelined. Hear me very carefully. By God's grace in this church, I hope that the aged men understand you have a role to play and we need your voice. We need your voice. Number two, we see the role of an older woman. The role of an older woman. Notice in verse number three, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given much wine, teachers of good things. Elizabeth Elliot wrote many years ago, she asked a question, a profound question. She said, where are the women of Titus 2? Where are the women of Titus 2? Where are the godly older women that are investing in young mothers, young wives, and young single ladies in the church? Where are they? We're so consumed right now with things that give no eternal value and we're watching our young ladies, just like our young men, grow up without mentoring, without discipleship, without being invested in. We struggle to find Sunday school teachers at times. We're looking for Awana workers. We're looking for somebody who will say, we need mentors. Notice what Paul says about these ladies. They're to be in behavior has become holiness. This is a lifestyle that is always seeking to grow in that which is holy and sacred. They're not false accusers. It means they don't slander and gossip with their mouth. In fact, the Greek word here used for accuser is the word diablos. They don't talk like devils. They're not critical. They're not belligerent and mean. They're not impatient and harsh. No, these are older ladies who are careful understanding that their words have significant weight when they speak. Then he goes on to say they're not given to much wine. You know, alcoholism must have been an issue since it's brought up often amongst church leaders. And the idea here is that godly women are not to have a first response in their life to ne the, the necessity of alcohol. They're not given to it. It's not a first impulse. Just, oh, i got to have a drink of wine. Oh, I need a beer. Oh, I just need. 
There's to be a self-control that says, no, I need the filling and working of the Holy Spirit. The teachers of good things. This is a reference to one-on-one teaching and encouragement. This mentoring of the younger by the more mature is a biblical pattern that we've neglected to our great hurt and harm. Younger women desperately need the role, modeling, teaching, teaching, discipling. They need insight. They need practical wisdom that these older ladies can provide. So being more experienced in life and in the Lord, these older ladies can pass on a godly legacy that will hopefully reproduce itself for generations. A godly home will orbit around a godly wife and mother. In a healthy church, we would see older, older men mentoring younger men and older women in the faith mentoring younger women. Then we see number three in the text. We see the importance of discipling younger women. Paul transitions from the aged women right to the younger women. And he says to the older women, you need to teach these things to the younger. And I just want to be clear on this. This is... This is not in conflict with the rest of Scripture. It is not a, it is, it is not a, a restrictive, this is a liberating thing that older women are to teach to younger women. So young ladies are to be taught good things by the older ladies. So Paul goes on to explain to Titus what these good things are. Now keep in mind, this is being pushed against by a culture that has to be seen as faulty, broken, but that God's system and plan are not. So here, here's what younger ladies need to learn from older ladies. And I'm being very rigid with this as far as what the Scripture says. Number one, sober. Again, the idea of clear-minded and self-controlled. They're to love their husbands. This is an interesting point to make here by Paul because husbands are commanded in Scripture to love their wives. But here Paul says that the wives are to love their husbands. Then they're told... The, the, the older ladies are to teach the youngers to love their children. This, is, this moves beyond the innate affection of cultivating, uh, the innate affection that a mother has for a child. That's not what Paul's saying, because a mother's love doesn't really have to be taught. But what Paul is saying here is to move beyond simply the affection for your child. But the older women are to mentor the younger women about cultivating a godly life in their children. So that means that a woman who is mentored by a younger woman, mentored by an older woman, would ultimately lovingly lead her children to Christ for salvation and God's prescription for a gospel life as found in the Word of God. Then it's to be discreet, a word that we don't often hear much anymore. Again, another reminder, to be mindful. So the older women, can I say this? The discreet idea of being discreet and teaching it is to be mindful and careful with life and decisions. To think in a mature manner. The best way for this to form in your life is through the up-close view of somebody that's older and wiser. So to the older women, I say, discretion and being discreet needs to be seen. It needs to be seen up front. Then we find this. Keepers at home. This actually doesn't mean that a woman must be in the home. But it does underscore that a married woman with a family is to find her home and her family to be her chief place of operation in the world. Being a wife and a mother is her highest calling to live out gospel mission. I'm going to say that again. It does not insist that you must be at home and a stay-at-home mom. But it does underscore that we should not look down on those 
who have seen that as an important role and have chosen to be home. It does say that if you have a job and a career and you are assisting your family in that manner, be careful not to replace the life of home with the life of career. So what's the danger in that? The detriment of rearing our children in a gospel-loving way. Verse Timothy 5 speaks to the same point. Then then Paul goes on to say to to Titus, the older women need to teach them, literally this is the word, to be good. (laughs) This is the idea of being pleasant and kind. Pleasant and kind. Now I know it's snowing, and I know that you're going to get out of here, and you're going to run out of here, and you're going to get annoyed like I do with people who can't seem to learn how to drive in the snow. But the idea of being pleasant and kind is, yes, a personality trait that often people have. It is also something that is taught. And Paul says, through inspiration, that the young women are to be good. They're to learn this from the older women. And then the last point here. He says, to be obedient to their own husbands. Now, why would he put the word own in there? Because for a lady in this culture, there's going to be other men who are trying to tell you what to do. Might be a boss. But you need to understand that the idea of obedience, by the way, is not master-slave. Husbands, let me be clear on that. You are not the master of your wife. You're not the Lord of your home, men. Jesus is. But women, Ephesians 5 is clear, that wives are to submit. And so this is a submission, an obedience of submission, that as a husband is commanded to lead his home in the manner which Christ leads the church, as a husband leads a home, a wife is to be submissive to, to, submissive to that leadership. And, and we're in a world where everything is demanding your submission to the younger women, especially the married women in here. Your role is first to your husband, second to boss. Maybe not be popular. Your wife is, your role is first to your family before job and career. Now let me just Maybe blow up a little bit of a myth for a minute that gets us uneasy. That's okay. In our day, there is an idea that feminism is some progressive idea. But I want to be clear with you. We trace feminism actually all the way back to Scripture. It's not progressive, it's regressive. Biblical history tells us that the the Babylonians, the Assyrians, had mythology that was steeped in feminism, as was Greek Gnosticism. All of this was predominant in Roman culture. And so when Paul is writing to Roman culture, he's not writing to a culture that knows nothing of feminism. He's writing to a culture that knows everything of feminism. And so what Paul is teaching here is not misogynistic, it's actually sacred. It's not anti-women, it's pro-women. It's not anti-freedom, it's pro-freedom. God actually frees us and he ordains the means to the free and the fruitful life. And so men and women alike in this text find not bondage, but freedom. I'm not interested in a cultural ideal of what men and women are called or are supposed to be. I'm not interested in what culture demands of you or of me. I'm interested in what God calls me to because God has created me. So don't see this as abusive. And I understand, I'm not aloof to the reality that people have used texts like this to abuse women. This church stands with none of that. It does stand with, God has a beautiful pattern 
when it works the way God intended it to happen. The last thing I want you to see here is discipling younger men. Discipling younger men. A burden of mine. A burden that I I pray some of the older men in this church will pick up as well. Young men need strong male mentors in their life. Scripture and culture attest to that fact. So Paul calls Titus and the aged men to show this forward to the younger men. And I call the older men of Ravenswood not to be disconnected and apathetic to this view of this calling. He says in verse 6, young men likewise exhort, notice what he says, to be sober-minded the third time. The third time in this text we get the idea of being self-controlled and level-headed. Not flying off the handle, not losing our cool, not blowing people up, but being sober-minded, level-headed. Then he says this about the older men. need to teach the younger men all things and all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. This was for Titus and the older men. There should be a pattern here of a life that can be followed. Paul told Timothy, he said, you have known my doctrine, but you've also known my manner of life. Then he goes on to say, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, Titus and the older men were to teach and model a biblical doctrine. Young men were to hear the doctrine and see it practiced. And if you're an older man that never talks biblical doctrine with younger men, you're failing them in the mentoring and in discipleship. You're failing them. In gravity, an older man who teaches younger men to be honest and sacred. This is lost in our day. Young men are what they are often because of the influence or lack of influence from an older man. So let me be, let me be very clear to the men of this church. The gravity comes out in how we speak, how we joke, what we embrace, what we talk about, especially with young men around. Respect of women, respect of their bodies, respect of the way we speak of them. The gravity of an older man is to teach a younger man. I say to my son, who's seven, often, men don't do that. We don't do that. I probably say it, Mindy would test, more than anything else to my son, we don't speak that way and we don't do that. He needs to hear it and other young men need to hear it. Sincerity. This is a picture of integrity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. It's an integrity in doctrine. It means an integrity in life which will come out in how a young man speaks. So it's vitally important that sound or healthy, wholesome speech comes out of our mouth. It's good for us to say men of integrity don't speak that way. Now I want to conclude here. A part of my calling as a pastor is to teach people how to live biblically. Your agreement or disagreement with something that has been spoken today is ultimately not with me. It's ultimately of Scripture. You've got to decide what you're going to do with Scripture. But let me say what I said earlier. A solid and healthy identity in the gospel first will free us to obey Him in the face of a culture that is opposed to Jesus. Living according to the philosophy of the world As I conclude, I want you to hear this. Living according to the philosophy of the world tends to pull apart marriages and leave children uninstructed in the things of God. The gospel of our Lord works against all that by insisting on lives that conform to the truth. This is a slow and difficult work. 
But the gospel in Crete and everywhere else calls us to what is typically described as traditional views of marriage, traditional views of marital roles, and child rearing. And I don't mean to say that everything someone puts under the label of traditional is a good thing. It's not. A lot of abuse, oppression, and privilege hides under the label of tradition. But I do mean to say that stressing the context, as we found today, of the virtues of marriage, of a complementarian, not a competitive role, but a complementarian role of genders and childering and respectful behavior and self-control, is what comes as sound doctrine. As such, it becomes a vital part of how we show forth the gospel with our lives in tough situations. This is not ammo for you to shoot at your spouse or to shoot at somebody else. This is application. This is application. Do I understand that I have a role to play in the gospel work in a church? If you're younger, hear me very carefully. One of the wisest decisions you can make is to find an older mentor. Take him or her to coffee, to breakfast, to lunch. Sit with them after church. If you're older, do not become so impatient that you tend to neglect that there are people that need your influence. If you do, it will be to the detriment of the gospel and Christianity around the world. A healthy church with healthy Christians follows a healthy pattern, embraces healthy roles, understands that God is good and right, and we must be obedient to what God has given. Often referred as traditional, old, out of touch, I get it. Again, I'm not really interested in what a broken person in culture says about what God has ordained. I'm interested in what God has given. What God has given. Healthy families, healthy churches, healthy children are brought up with healthy roles. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.